0: And well, our text this morning is probably of no surprise to any of you. It's still Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. And uh, I don't apologize for that, though <laughs> I'm tempted to every once in a while. We're almost done, I promise. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. Father, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us. We confess and believe that we did not come here this morning to hear a man speak. We did not come here this morning to be entertained by a clown. We came here this morning to encounter the living God as he has preached in his word and we believe that when the man of God stands in the pulpit amongst the people of God on the Lord's day and preaches the word of God that your Holy Spirit inhabits that moment in a special way and it causes the word to go home in our hearts in a special way and it corrects us and it rebukes us, and it encourages us, and it trains us in righteousness, and it does all the things that only you can do in a human life. So we look for you to do that now, Father. We say, Master, speak, thy servant heareth, waiting on thy gracious word. Amen. Well, as we come into the home stretch of our studies on Ephesians 5 uh, 22 through I think it might be a good time to mention something. Uh, I was talking to somebody midweek, and and she was uh, commenting that there's uh, a lot of quiet nudging going on in the pews when I start talking about husbands and wives. And and there's a, a real thing that happens to us when the Word of God encounters us in places where we have been systematically disobedient, the word of God, either through ignorance or through willful sin, and texts like this one are often painful to us. They uncover things that maybe we wish had stayed buried, and they reveal to us how wrong we've been and how much of a mess that we've made of things, how much damage we might have done to someone or some other many someones whom we love, and it's an uncomfortable process. And the conviction of the Holy Spirit and real repentance usually is an uncomfortable process, and sometimes it's even painful. My counsel to you is to kiss the rod, so to speak. Let God have his way, and you will find on the other side of pain and sorrow, you will find forgiveness, you will find restoration, you will find wholeness and healing and peace if you just do what God wants you to do, if you just submit to him. Reburying things and avoiding them only gives them power over you. And that power that they have over you usually causes you pain, and it probably creates further damage in your life as well. And it's easy to look at the short-term pain versus the long-term dull ache and say, I'd rather do the long-term, dull ache. I'm not sure I have the courage to face the hard things. Well, I understand, and I will pray for you and have been praying for you that you would be whole. So get whole, get your house in order so that you can serve as the Lord's example to the world because we live in a culture full of people who really have no idea how to be married because nobody ever taught them. And there's a tremendous need today for married couples who have been through the fire and who have figured out what God commands and have seen that it is really actually good and they understand how it works. And and so we have this tremendous need for men who can say to other men, here is how to be a good husband. And for women to say to other women, here is how to be a good wife. You see, the world needs us. It really does. And it needs us to stand strong and unapologetic and to show the light and to show that our lives with Jesus are better because he enters in and makes new things that could not be made new any other way. Now, last week, we began to explore what it means for husbands to love their wives as Christ loves the church. And we began by saying that the husband cannot properly love his wife unless uh, God and what God wants is in first place in the life of the husband. And I would hasten to add that the same holds true for the wife. She can't love her husband like she's supposed to love her husband and she can't submit to her husband like she's supposed to submit to her husband uh, and respect him unless God is in first place because God is the one then that provides the boundaries that are healthy and appropriate, but God has to come first. And, and a human being, no human being, can be allowed to usurp the place of God in your life. And we see this sometimes with people who, for instance, will make a child the center of their life to the destruction of their marital relationship. But anything that God gives us that's good can turn into a trap because we take it out of the place that it's intended to occupy and we give it a place in our life that it's never intended to occupy, and then it just goes crazy and causes destruction. And you can do that with alcohol. You can do that with consumer debt and spending money. You can do that with a woman or with a man or with a child. You can do that with a job. You can do that with a hobby. Anything that is a good gift, you can take out of its proper place, and it turns into something that's monstrous and something that's destructive to you. If someone besides God comes first in your life, it will end up being very destructive to everyone involved. Having God first places good and appropriate boundaries and limits on your relationships with others. And this is true, especially true, in the relationship between a husband and a wife. Secondly, we saw that the definition of the agape love that the husband is commanded in this text to show to his wife is a sincere and steady desire for her well-being, as God defines that well-being, and a willingness to do whatever is within your power to accomplish that well-being. That's the definition of love, okay? the, the kind of love that we're talking about here. How does that play out, though? In day-to-day, nuts-and-bolts sorts of ways. Well, it would be helpful at this point to think a little bit about how Christ loves the church, how Christ cares for his church, how Christ saved and sustains his church, because that's our model as husbands for relating to our wives, according to this text. And here we find the Westminster Shorter Catechism and Larger Catechisms to be very helpful precisely because it takes all the relevant Bible passages and it puts them together to form a complete picture for us. And that's one of the reasons why I love these resources. Because it just pulls everything from everywhere. And if you want to check their homework, they give you scriptural passages within the footnotes. And you can say, okay, I see now why they say that. They got it from this passage in scripture. And we find, for instance, in question 23 of the Shorter Catechism, that Christ saves his people through the exercise of three different offices that are all rolled up into one person. Christ is prophet. Christ is priest. And Christ is king, prophet, priest, and king. Now, how does Christ relate to his church savingly through those three offices? Well, as prophet, Christ reveals God's will to us. And that's, if you think about it, that's the role of a prophet. The role of a prophet really is only incidentally foretelling what the future holds. The role of a prophet really is, thus saith the Lord, this is what you need to know right now. And very often when the the future is forecast. It is simply so that people will know that the prophet is a, the real deal rather than a fake, okay? So as prophet, Christ reveals God's will to us. And friends, God's will for you is the best thing that there is for you. Now, that, that may be weird for you to think about because you, you may think about the things that you want are, are what's really best for you. And then there's the things that God wants for you. And, it, and it's like... Um, uh, like like green tea, you know, or something that nobody would voluntarily put in their mouth. I, I saw this wonderful little thing on Facebook uh, that said that um, if you have guests over, um, serve them green tea for the following reasons. Uh, number one, you, you look uh, sophisticated and rich. Number two, they won't drink very much of it. Number three, you don't have to serve cookies and milk. And number four, they'll never come back again. And so, Right. And so we think of God's will like green tea. It's like, well, it's supposed to be good for me, but ugh. and here's what I really want over here is cookies and cake. Well, no, God's will—that's the devil's trick to get you thinking that way. God's will really is what's best for you, and God wants what's best for you. If you've ever been in in like rehab after a surgery or an injury or something like that, um, you know that rehab is is kind of painful. But if you don't do it, the outcome is worse. Right? I knew somebody that had their shoulder replaced and, and she did not want to do rehab. She went a couple of times. She's like, This hurts. I'm not going to do it. And literally, her shoulder was frozen like this for the rest of her life. And she was in constant pain. And, and it was silly. It was a silly decision. But she didn't understand that not doing the rehab will be worse than the pain that you have doing the rehab and she never recovered from that pain and it was too late she she died in pain 10 years later well that's how it is with god god's will is the best thing that there is and it gives you wholeness and strength it may be short term sometimes painful sometimes it's just pleasant sometimes it's just like letting go of some burden and just rolling it onto jesus shoulders and that's god's will and it feels good but sometimes it's it's a little harder well As prophet, Christ tells us what God wants. He gives us God's word. As priest, Christ stands between us as sinful human beings and a holy God, and he makes intercession for us on our behalf to God at the cost of his own blood. In other words, Jesus spends himself for our good. That's what a priest does, as an intercessor, one who stands between. As king, Christ subdues us to himself because we all start off as rebellious in our heart and we need to be saved, we need to be born again. And if you're not born again, you need to be. And you can't have the kingdom of heaven until you are. And if you don't know how to do that, ask me and I'll tell you. But as king, he subdues us to himself and then he gives his people rules and laws to live by, which tend to our wholeness and good and health. And he corrects us when we err. And he rewards and praises us when we do well. And he defends and supports us under temptation and suffering. And he subdues all of our enemies and defends us against their attacks. That's all of our enemies, both spiritual and ultimately physical. And then that's, We find this in questions 43 through 45 of the larger catechism, if you want to look it up online after church. And that, in a nutshell, is how Christ loves the church. Now, you will perhaps recall that when we were discussing Adam and his failure in the garden, we examined it through the lens of prophet, priest, and king. And I did that on purpose. Adam was the first man, and he was our prototype of what humanity should be, but Adam fell and marred his appearance. Jesus is the last Adam, and he didn't blow it. So if you want to know what true manhood looks like, you look at Jesus. All right? That's that's our blueprint as men in particular. We want to be like Jesus because he didn't blow it like our father Adam did. But Jesus was prophet, priest, and king. Is prophet, priest, and king. Adam was prophet, priest, and king as well, And as prophet, he was responsible to tell his wife, he had a very short sermon. He had to tell his wife what God had said about the tree and its fruit. As priest, he should have been praying for her. And when she ate, he should have gone to God on her behalf uh, to plead for his mercy upon her as an intercessor. And as king, he should have said, Eve, because he was standing right there and he wasn't deceived. He should have said, Eve stop talking to the snake get back and let me deal with it and then he should have gone after the snake and he should have been a warrior for her you know Mark Twain said um, uh, jokingly he said you know the mistake that God made was in forbidding the fruit because we always want what we're not supposed to have he said instead he should have forbidden eating the snake and that would have caused everything to work out all right. well Adam should have just clubbed the snake and had snake for dinner But he didn't do that. Every Christian husband should love his wife by being a prophet to her. In other words, he should know the Word of God and he should take up daily the Word of God. And having been obedient to it himself, he should share it with her. And when she sins against God and His Word, A loving husband should not wink at it. He should not excuse it. He also should not crush her with the Word of God harshly or use it merely as an instrument to gain power over her and try and make her fulfill his selfish Word. No, that's not what he's aiming at. What he's aiming at is a wife who knows and does the Word of God and to be one himself who leads by example. And by example, I mean by knowing and doing the will of God himself. In other words, men, she's watching you. And she should be. It's her right to do that. And she's saying, if you're going to come to me with this stuff, I want to know that you know this stuff. And I want to know that you're doing this stuff. And that's fair. That's completely fair. You know, in the Corinthian church, Paul addressed a certain problem. And in those days, uh, the men and the women sat separately in the church, the men on one side and the women on the other, as they do today among Orthodox Jews and among Muslims. And uh, apparently the women in the church at Corinth had questions about the sermon. And they were conversing loudly among themselves in church trying to get answers to those questions and it was disrupting everything. And in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul addresses that situation. And he says to the women, if a woman has questions, she should ask her husband instead of yapping with the other women in the middle of the worship service. That's a paraphrase from the Greek, yapping in the middle of the service. Men, let me just ask you, who is the expert on Bible and doctrine in your home? Who knows the most? For a lot of you, it's your wife because you don't bother to read anything. You don't bother to learn anything. You don't bother to come to Sunday school. You fall asleep during the sermon. God, men, God calls you to be the person, the kind of person, who could give his wife an answer if she had questions. God calls you to be the prophet in your own home, in that you speak the word of God to her and to your children, if God gives them. And the exercise of the office of prophet is one of the ways that Christ loves his church, and it's one of the ways that you're to love your wife. Because it will tend to be good for her soul. And you want to care for her soul. I'd like to start a men's ministry at Tabernacle that's dedicated to helping uh, men get each other equipped and fulfill this role in the home. But if I started it, would you come uh, faithfully? Or is golf more important to you? Be honest. You know, I, I used to hang out with a group of guys from four different churches when I lived in Sturgis. We'd we'd meet in a cigar bar in Rapid City and we'd study and discuss theology together and we called our little group Burnt Offerings. And it was a wonderful, wonderful time of male fellowship. And for those of you with a, a Baptist bent who frown on such things, I would like to take this opportunity to inform you that none other than the great Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the prince of the preachers, the Baptist, smoked cigars regularly. And there was one time when a woman chastised him for his cigar habit. And he said, "Uh, my dear madam, I would give up smoking cigars if I ever found myself smoking them to excess. And she said, well, Mr. Spurgeon, what do you mean by to excess? And he said, two at one time. So. There's something about men getting together that's good. And men getting together to learn and apply the things of God for our families is good. A place where older men and younger men can meet and know and help one another. Maybe over a steak or some refreshing beverages with an occasional trip to the shooting range or the lake for some recreational activities. Um, I used to we used to have every year what we called in Sturgis our ATF party. It was guys only. I had some pictures of it. I don't know if they made it into the into this. Yeah, there we go. That, so that that picture there coupled with the next one. No, nope, keep going. Keep going. Keep going. That one. Yeah. That actually got the FBI checking out our church website. <laughs> It, that, it, the guy that's doing that, it's a tow missile, it's an empty one, he was a marine and he did tow missiles. And, and so um, we actually had the FBI, because I, I tracked what happened on our website, they were like, I don't like these pictures. We had a good time. We'd go out to this guy's house, he lived out in the country, he had I don't know how many acres, and we'd set up a bow range, a pistol range, a rifle range, and skeet shooting, and we'd shoot those exploding targets, and then we'd put out the prairie fires, and we had a ball, and then we'd all have dinner, and conversation and prayer and it was just a the women were jealous they were like we want you to do one for us and I was like you got to do one for you you know and and it was we just had every year ATF party it was a fall rite of passage we had such a good time but it was really all about innocent fun with guys together and then learning about Jesus and learn how to walk with Jesus and that's what we need guys we need that. We need that fellowship because iron sharpens iron and you cannot give to somebody else what you do not first possess yourself. Every husband should love his wife by taking on the role of priest in the home as well. Now remember a priest intercedes with God on behalf of those whom he ministers among and a priest spends himself in costly service. And the goal of that costly service is to bring his wife and children near to God. And once again, we must lead first by setting an example. He must draw close to God himself so that his wife and children can look at him in order to understand what it means to be truly near to God. So that you're the example in your home of what godliness looks like. And he must pray. He must pray for his wife. He must pray for his children. He must pray for their bodily health and well-being. He must pray for their choice of friends. He must stand against Satan in intercessory prayers as a watchman on the wall because the devil will try everything he can do to get into your home and to disrupt things. Just as Satan slithered into the garden, he will slither into your home. And I must add this practical bit of wisdom from my own experience— One of the main entry points today for Satan into a family is social media. Strictly control computers and smartphones, friends. The evil that lurks on the internet is massive and it is dangerous. Dads, husbands, it's time to put on your big girl panties and fight that fight. It's time to know who is doing what where on the internet And if anyone behaves in an untrustworthy manner, it's time to get rid of whatever you need to get rid of to stop it immediately because too much is at stake. And then, guys, you need to make sure you're not going places on the Internet that you shouldn't go, that you would be embarrassed to have your wife or your children see. Which sort of slides over into the next role, doesn't it? king. The husband is the king of his home, and the wife is the queen as Christ is the king of the church. Now, I want you to notice something here. We get things confused in our day. Uh, And I'm gonna say it this way and then I'll explain what it means. We think indicatives are imperatives. In other words, we think God's statements about what is are commands to make things the way they ought to be, but that's not what he's doing here. Um, To put it another way, we think when the scriptures make statements about what is the case, we tend to act like what God really means is that we ought to try and make it the case if we feel like it, and no biggie if we don't. Paul does not say here that the husband ought to try to act like the head of his wife if she will let him. Like Christ ought to act like the head of the church if the church will let him. No, no. He says the husband is the head of his wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. In other words, God has ordained that this position of husband and this position of wife are what they are and they are how they are. And that's what's real. And that's what's true. And it's true whether you particularly feel like it's true or not. It's true whether you believe it or not. It's true whether you accept it or not. It's true whether you obey it or not. It's just true. It's how things are. The husband is the head of his wife. And that's true whether you like it or not. It's true whether you live according to it or not. And a husband who refuses this role is refusing the role that God assigned to him. And he is rebelling against God. And God will discipline him for it. And his family will also probably be much more of a mess than it would have been otherwise. Ladies, a wife who resists her husband when he's doing his level best to be and do what God has called him to be and do is rebelling against God, and God will discipline her. And the Bible refers to such a woman in many ways. In particular, in Proverbs, it talks about a woman who pulls the roof of her own house down on top of her head. That's what you're really doing when you resist God. But the world has had so many bad kings, hasn't it? We're supposed to be kings. Christ is king, Adam was king, we're supposed to be kings. But, but the world has had a lot of bad kings. And we are not to use Herod the Great or Henry, Henry VIII as our pattern and our benchmark for how a king behaves. We are to have Christ for our model. And how, how is Christ king? Well, Christ subdues us to himself, says the, says the scriptures, not by force not with threats, but with love. We give ourselves to him precisely because he first gave himself for us. In other words, we see his goodness and his character, and we know that he wants our best, and we place our confidence in him, and we willingly give him the control of our lives. And that's how it should be, man. If you you go to find a wife, uh, you need to find a good one. A few weeks ago, I cautioned the women, don't marry a doofus. Well, man, if you've got the opportunity ahead of you to marry, don't marry a doofus either. If a woman won't agree to run your marriage relationship on biblical principles, don't marry her, period. In 28 years of pastoral ministry, I've only done two weddings that ended in divorce that I'm aware of. And in both cases, it was moonstruck guys who married angry, reflexively defiant, rebellious women, and they made their lives hell for a few years, and then they both had affairs, and they both left their husbands, and you could see it coming a mile away, and both were professing Christians. The number one characteristic of those women was that they didn't want anybody telling them what to do, just like Satan. And by their activity and by their behavior, they ultimately proved who they really belong to. Men, do not marry a woman who will render it impossible for, for you to perform your duty towards God where she is concerned. And do not marry at all if you are going to refuse to take up this responsibility because it's not fair to inflict your indifference on a woman. Women, if you cannot bring yourself to obey God in this area... Don't get married. It's as simple as that. Just don't get married. You don't need to be a wife. You don't need to be a mother. You will make a mess of it if you're not willing to do what God says. Man, what can you do to demonstrate a Christ-like love that will subdue your wife to you? Well, think of how the arrival of sin in the world impacted Eve. The world is now a place full of predatory threats since the fall and death has been introduced, and she's craving safety, and she's craving security to a degree that you probably don't realize most of the time, then you need to be, if you're going to love your wife, you need to be the kind of man who naturally exudes confidence and competence that's based in reality. You need to be the kind of man who she can look at and say, I can have children with this man and place myself in a vulnerable position for an extended period of time and have confidence that he will be faithful and he will take good care of his family. In other words, you need to be the kind of man who is easy for her to respect. Now, there are some very simple, but very important and in her mind, highly symbolic things that you can do which will help. Now, this is hard-won wisdom from experience, guys. Pay attention. Number one, do what you say you are going to do, and do it in a timely fashion. Let the nudging begin in the pews there. Have you seen the, have you seen the, the, the cups and thing, T-shirts and things like that? When a man says that he will fix it, he will fix it, and you don't need to remind him about it every six months, right? We're all, we're so guilty of that, they made a t-shirt for us, guys. Do what you say you're gonna do. Be careful about agreeing to do anything. If you're not really gonna follow through and don't have a plan for it, don't agree to it. Because she will take that as a lack of confidence and competence and a lack of reliability. Number two, especially for the young guys, don't boast. Don't brag, don't bluff. Let your deeds show her what kind of man you are. It says in Proverbs chapter 27 and verse two, let another praise you and not your own mouth. Number three, under promise and over deliver. Under promise, but over deliver. Number four, cultivate a steady temperament. Don't indulge in fits of anger. Don't be volatile in your temperament. She's got enough volatile emotions of her own to deal with. She does not need to try and figure out how to manage yours in the mix. Don't do it. Don't get mad and cuss and throw things across the room. Even if you're elbow deep in dodge, don't do it. Hard to do, but don't do it. Number five, don't look at porn. It ruins you. It ruins your brain. There are now men in their 20s who are going to doctors and asking for uh, Viagra because things don't work anymore because they've nuked their brains on pornography and normal things no longer excite them. This is pathetic. It is destructive. It creates all kinds of problems. It creates unrealistic expectations. It destroys marital intimacy. Do not look at porn. Number six, be self-disciplined. Pick up after yourself. Clean up your own messes that you make. Cultivate order in your environment. I, I don't know about you, but my toolbox has things laid out pretty well so that I can find them. But the rest of my house doesn't. It's a lot my fault. Because I get insanely crazy when I'm looking for my 15 millimeter box wrench and I can't find it in a timely fashion. But I'm not that concerned about the rest of the house. Cultivate order in your house. That will help her. Number seven, finish what you start. Finish what you start. Number eight, get a job. Get the best job you can. Work hard at that job. Do not be the bum that she has to support. You be the one who supports her. Get a job. Number nine, once you've got that job, do not waste your hard-earned money on things that are not necessary or that are foolish. And I have in mind things like tattoos, and hot rods and Xboxes and big screen TVs and all that other nonsense that guys like to spend their money on when they haven't grown up. It's okay to have a few toys now and again if you can afford them. But if you spend all your money on that stuff, she looks at you and says, yeah, but how are we gonna be able to afford the rent on a bigger house? How are we ever gonna be able to afford to have a decent car? I'm not sure I can trust this guy with my well-being. Number 10, don't take on debt. Don't take on consumer debt. Uh, Education debt maybe, household, you know, debt for a mortgage, okay. But don't take on debt and don't spend everything you make. Save some. Number 11, set goals and work towards them steadily. Number 12, put God first in your life. Go to church. Serve the church. Put God first. You get out of bed on Sunday morning, get up and go to church, and she lays there going, what are you doing? You go, well, I'm going to church. You can come with me, or you can lay here in bed all day, but I'm going to church. And when she sees that, she'll go, huh, here's a guy who's committed to something. Number 13, don't whine. Don't complain. You just look weak when you whine and complain. If you've got to complain about something to somebody, go and complain to the Lord. We've got wonderful examples in the book of the Psalms about men complaining to the Lord, pouring out their complaint before the Lord. He's the only one that can do anything about most of the things that you are complaining about anyway. Don't whine and don't complain. Number 14, don't procrastinate. Get it done. Number 15, don't lie. Be the kind of person who speaks the truth, don't lie. And number 16, be decisive, be decisive. Even if you're wrong, it's better to be decisive and choose wrongly and then go, you know what, that didn't work, we need to change course and then go ahead and change course. It's it's better to do that than to just be paralyzed by indecision all the time. Just make a decision. Be decisive. Get it over with. You know, a number of years ago, I was watching a video, and they showed a picture of an Eastern Orthodox icon, and it's called, uh, in Greek, honumpios, or the bridegroom. And it's obviously a, a picture of Jesus as he's been beaten by the Roman soldiers, and he's on his way to the crucifixion. In the Orthodox Church, That icon is given to every husband on their wedding day. And it's given to every husband precisely because of Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. And the purpose of it is to say, look at him. Look at him like he is right there. Look at the expression on his face. Why is he doing that? He is suffering to purchase for himself a bride who he will love and support and cherish and make holy and enjoy forever. That's what he's doing. And that's what your job is as husbands. And sometimes, friends, it's going to feel like that. Now, ladies, I know you've got your own peculiar crosses to bear, and I'm not denying that at all. But we need to understand, guys need to understand and women need to understand, a biblical marriage requires voluntary self-sacrifice on the part of the man which is completely contrary to his fallen nature. It is a little death to become what Jesus wants you to be as a husband. Sometimes it feels like a big death. You are sacrificing yourself for her, for her well-being. And you're gonna do that for Jesus. You're not doing that to be appreciated by her. Because sometimes, frankly, she will not appreciate you and you will feel like, well, why in the world am I doing this? I should go buy myself a hot rod and a motorcycle. Why in the world should I suffer if she's not going to respect me? The answer is because God said so. Because God said so, and you serve God. And God has the key to her heart and her mind. And maybe someday if you pray hard enough and love hard enough and serve hard enough, he will turn her eye towards you and she will look at you and she will go, wow, I never knew what I had. right here." Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you. I pray, Father, that if anything I've said this morning is untrue, is unhelpful, is not good, is unwise, that you would cause it to be forgotten. And I ask, Father, if anything that I've said this morning is good and helpful and wise, that you would cause it to just be planted in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name.